Uh, let's ask God to help us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as the Lord Jesus uh, promised, the Spirit would come uh, to his followers, those who believed in him, and would lead and guide them into truth. Uh, so we pray in your mercy. We would know the work of your Spirit in our hearts as we turn to your word now. And that taught by your Spirit, we would learn from the words of our Lord, uh, from his gospel, what it is to know you so that we might know you in truth. Uh, have mercy on us. Help us to hear with understanding, to receive with faith and grant me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. This, said our Lord Jesus, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The great claim of Christians is that believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they have come to know the true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth. That as John writes, listening to Jesus, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, they know the truth of God that God himself has revealed. But to claim to know God is more than claiming to know the truth about God, just as knowing your wife or your friend is more than knowing about them. Christians, believers in Jesus, claim they know God in the sense that they are in relationship with him where they are known by him and embraced by his care. This was the promise of the new covenant uh, from Hebrews, quoting from Jeremiah, verse 11. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. And what God has promised, he has, says the gospel, brought about through his son, the Lord Jesus, for all who trust him. The Lord Jesus who has brought us forgiveness of our sins through his death and so removed the obstacle to our relationship with the living and holy God. Now let's stop for a minute and think about that claim to know God, to think about how good it is to be able to say, I know God and he knows me. Jeremiah helps us to see that, that goodness, when he says it should be our one boast, the one thing we should take pride in, want to be known for, find our identity in possessing. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. And so says Jeremiah, think what people boast in, take pride in. Wisdom, you know, knowledge, expertise, yes, we see that. Strength, physical prowess and beauty, wealth and the power it brings. That's right, people boast in all those things. But all those things will pass away. In this changing world, already they're insecure. Our knowledge can become outdated. 
our wisdom leave us? Strength wanes. Oh, yes, for those of you who play sport, there are the veterans' leagues, but that is, of course, already an admission. You can't keep up. And uh, there's wealth, crash, a scam, a war. And all these things will be taken from us at death. Naked we come from the womb and naked we depart. But the one who knows God, who is in relationship with him, always has a boast, always has a secure identity that can never be shaken, never be taken from us, even at death. They can boast because of who the Lord is, almighty, who can bring all that is into being from nothing, the God who has life in himself and gives life to whom he wills, the God who can raise the dead and the God who shows faithful love, justice and righteousness, the God who will never abandon his people, never fail in his word to those who know him. Oh, and the God who will never stop being who he is. It is good to know God. Where we know God, our achievements and disappointments cease to be ultimate, cease to be the source of our identity and worth, cease to be able to crush us. You see, where we know God, achievements and disappointments can both now be received as coming from the hand of the God who rules all things and who cares for us. And so they do lose that power to overwhelm us or to puff us up. At one example, King David gives us a glimpse of how knowing God can transform our experience, our experience of disappointment. In Psalm 63, he writes, My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. Now that's true for those who know it. His faithful love is better than life, for it endures beyond this life. But what has this knowledge worked in David? Well, if you read the psalm, you'd see verses 1 to 2, that it worked a longing for God. But more than that, verse 4 and 5, I will bless you as long as I live. You satisfy me with as rich food my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So it's worked in David, that soul-uplifting, renewing, praise but but more when I think of you as I lie on my bed I meditate on you during the watches of the that during the night watches because you are my helper I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings I will f- follow close to you your right hand holds on to me knowing that God's steadfast love is better than life works for David joy and that sense of security Now, what were David's circumstances as he writes these things? Was he lying on his bed in the palace, thinking all is right with the world? No, this is how the psalm is introduced. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. What time was that? Well, verse 11 of the psalm refers uh, to David as king. And so this is probably when he was in the wilderness of Judah when he was fleeing for his life from his son Absalom. That is, because David knows God, knows his steadfast love, can say God is his God, he's experiencing this joy and security when he's been driven from his home, suffered the humiliation of fleeing before his son. 
when he knows there are people who want to kill him, actively seeking to do that, when he's camping rough in the wilderness, dependent on the generosity of others, having lost all that was his, dependent not just for himself but for those who are his. It's in this context that he writes, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. And knowing that faithful love can praise, give thanks, rejoice and be secure. And brothers and sisters, that same steadfast love on which David could rely, well, that's the steadfast love everyone who knows God in Christ can also rely on. That's what Paul writes of believers, isn't it? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where we know God, our experience of our achievements and disappointments is transformed for we are kept in his love. But there's more, isn't there? Where we know God, says Paul in Romans 5, our experience of suffering is transformed. Confident of his grace, assured of his love, we can rejoice in our suffering because we know it will work in us endurance, character and a hope beyond this life, a hope that will never be disappointed. Oh, where we know God, our experience of death and of the anticipation of death, an anticipation we all know at some time, is transformed. That's right, Paul says, to depart and be with Christ is better by far as he anticipates his death. To depart and be with Christ is better by far. He could look forward confidently to what so many dread. It's no wonder, isn't it, that Paul thought that knowing Christ and in knowing Christ, knowing the living God, being at peace with him, embraced by his steadfast love, was of surpassing value, worth giving up everything for. Worth everything as the source of enduring joy and thankfulness in all circumstances, of stability in turmoil, of peace when the world knows no peace, of hope when all human hope is lost as it is in death. Knowing God, finding eternal life in knowing the only true God and the Lord Jesus, his son, should be the boast of believers should be the place where we find our secure identity. It should be the thing we glory in. But many things conspire to rob believers of that joy, to make them hesitant in our boasting in God, to obscure and devalue the privilege we have in knowing God. Think about them. Our world, our society tells us God is unimportant. 
And so whether you know God or not doesn't really matter. Our world insists, in fact, that it makes no difference what you believe about God. You can live a good life, it says, or perhaps a better life if you don't bother about God. And so we're discouraged from talking about God and so from being conscious of God. Our world deliberately seeks to shrink God's presence into insignificance. And so knowing him is insignificant. And the devil's active with his lies in our society, telling us our God is just one God amongst many, one set of human beliefs amongst many, and all just projections of human need or experience with no real power, portraying the living God as just another dumb and lifeless idol. Oh, and our flesh, that heart we've inherited from Adam that wants to do what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. Our flesh discourages pursuit of the knowledge of God too, doesn't it? We find it so easy to be distracted by the cares and pleasures of life, to find our identity like our neighbours in our sport or our work or our family or our sexuality. For our flesh, you see, doesn't want to be either humbled or holy. And knowing God commits a believer to both. The world, the flesh and the devil, our ancient enemies, combine constantly to rob us of our appreciation of our privilege of knowing God, with the result that often we believers, in my observation, live as poor people, people who think their resources in meeting trials are so limited when we're actually rich in knowing God and knowing God knows us. We live as insecure people because we've tied our happiness and peace like our neighbours to things that pass and not to knowing the eternal God. We live as people who lack confidence in engaging the world when those who know God can mock the world's idols as dumb and powerless and know that the guidance of those who deny God is foolish and can dismiss it. So often we live with fears and anxieties of ultimate failure, of abandonment, of loss of things, of loneliness, of a future we cannot control. Fears and anxieties that rob us of the joy and thankfulness that those who know God, who truly know God, can know in all circumstances. For he is almighty to keep his people and he rules all things for their good. So seeing that, feeling that, that constant pressure to minimise and obscure the great good of knowing God, the talks over the next few weeks are going to be about knowing God as we have come to know him in believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the God who has graciously revealed himself to us in the incarnation, life, death and resurrection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, the God who has graciously drawn us into relationship with himself through the gospel as his, uh, as his spirit has opened our eyes to his truth. And the way we're going to remind ourselves of and refresh ourselves in that revelation of God in the gospel is by going through what's called the Nicene Creed. For as you're about to hear, it is a great summary of God's revelation of himself in the gospel. And this is how it reads. We believe in one God, 
the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son with the Father and the Son. He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, creeds, as summaries of what Christians believe, have proved useful over the centuries. Useful for instruction. If you understand what this creed says, you actually understand what is central to what Christians believe about God. And in a sense, that will give us our kind of, our topics, our syllabus for the rest of this term. But it's also, creeds have also proved useful for mission as a summary to communicate what Christians believe to the surrounding society and useful in giving clarity to issues in dispute, as this creed does in speaking of the relation of the Father to the Son and rejecting the teaching that the Son is an exalted creature, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. And in giving clarity to those issues, creeds can make sure that the faith is transmitted accurately. Now, this particular creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, because it was first formulated at the council held in a place called Nicaea in 325 AD and then re-expressed in the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD and then endorsed at a council at Chalcedon in 451 AD is good to know in itself. It's good to know in itself because it's something that believers have been using to confess their faith from the 4th century. As a summary of what all Christians believe, that's right, it's the one truly universal creed. It's what Orthodox and Catholic also confess. And as a shared confession, it's a reminder to us that we are connected to believers throughout the world and across the centuries in a common faith. But we're, in a sense, not looking at it for its own sake. We are using it because its structure and focus helps us know our God. Its structure, as you heard, is Trinitarian. It's a confession of God as one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And it speaks of the relationship of the Father to the Son and to the Son of the Spirit, their relationship to each other in the one God. Now, this Trinitarian structure, Father, Son, Spirit, is significant for the doctrine of the Trinity. Confessing the one true God as Father, Son and Spirit is not an abstraction or a difficulty. It is, as I hope you'll see in the coming weeks, 
the guarantee of true knowledge of God, of being able to say that we know God. It's a doctrine that's the guarantee of our salvation, of knowing you are saved by the living God. It's a doctrine that guarantees the character of that salvation as a relationship of love. And, of course, it's a doctrine that guarantees, as it should, that all the glory in saving us is God's. This creed helps us in knowing God by its Trinitarian structure and it helps us by its focus which is, as you've heard, on the person and work of the Lord Jesus, that key central part. The person and work of the Lord Jesus is the key to both our understanding of who God is and our relationship with him. And in both these things, it reflects the emphasis of the New Testament for the creed or the work of our bishops, however you want to think about it, does not create the doctrine of the Trinity. The creed seeks to express in ways that are understandable, particularly to those who have no background in the Old Testament, what we have come to know in the gospel. And that's the first big point that's the foundation of all that we'll say about God in the coming weeks. This is the first big point. Christian revelation is the revelation of God as Father, Son and Spirit one God from the beginning. And so the Christian experience of being saved is of being saved by the Father, Son and Spirit. And there's a second foundational point that we need to know, right, need to know as we come to think about the teaching of the creed. And it's this, that the Christian experience of being saved is the experience of being saved by the Lord of the Old Testament as he promised. And so our understanding of God takes over in its entirety the revelation of God in the Old Testament. And I'm going to take some time to demonstrate the truth of both of these points this morning because sometimes people say that the church invented the doctrine of the Trinity And sometimes people want to suggest that the Christian God is somehow a departure from the God of the Old Testament. And both those things are untrue and, if believed, destructive. So firstly, Christian revelation is the revelation of God as Father, Son and Spirit, one God from the beginning. And so the Christian experience of being saved is of being saved by the Father, Son and Spirit. You see, long before the doctrine of the Trinity was precisely formulated, believers were committed to confessing one God, Father, Son and Spirit, because of the teaching of Jesus, the life and teaching of Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus who spoke of God as his Father and of sending the Spirit. And you heard that in our reading from John 14. But let me enlarge a little on that. Uh, Starting earlier in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus says, have I been among you so all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. Hear that. Jesus speaks of God as his Father and of the Father and the Son being intimately related such that to know Jesus is to know the Father, to see Jesus is to see the Father, to hear Jesus is to hear the Father's words. Yet Jesus and the Father are distinct. Jesus is the way to the Father, not the Father. He is in the Father but not identical to him and he will go to the Father. More, just as Jesus speaks of the Father, he also speaks of the Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I'll ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever He is the spirit of truth. Jesus speaks of the spirit as another counsellor, that is, a counsellor who will take the place of Jesus when Jesus is no longer physically present with his disciples. And the spirit is the spirit of God. But he's not the father or the son. Yet where the spirit is present, so also are the father and the son. If anyone loves me, He will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's the Lord Jesus who teaches us God is father and who speaks of the spirit as the spirit of God and of himself as distinct from the father and the spirit. And central to what Jesus taught us of God is actually what he taught us of himself and of his relationship to the father. He tells us that it is the Father's will he shares in the honour the Father receives. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all people may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Anyone who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And the honour the Father receives is the honour creatures pay to their Creator. And Jesus says it's the Father's will he shares in the worship, the honour creatures pay to their creator. And Jesus spoke repeatedly of himself as coming from the Father. That is, he did not originate here. He comes from the Father. Do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world? Because I said I am the Son of God. He speaks of himself as existing before time. Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And while distinct from the Father, of being one with the Father. Now we will come back to this. But the Lord Jesus teaches what the creed summarises, that the God whom he revealed and who saves us is Father, Son and Spirit, one in saving one in honour. And this is the way Christians from the beginning have thought about their experiences. Some verses, and there are lots, but in these we see Father, Son and Spirit all involved in our salvation. So Peter speaks of believers as chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Or Paul, Speaking of salvation, says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Father, Son and Spirit. And this is, of course, the believer's ongoing experience. What does Paul say, uh, pray in a sense for the Corinthian believers? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's the Father, Son and Spirit continuing to keep us in their kindness. See, those believers who formulated the creed weren't seeking to invent a new understanding of God but to articulate and protect what they were given. The Christian confession of the God who saves us, the confession which is there from the beginning, is of our God as Father, Son and Spirit. Christian revelation is and Christian experience is Trinitarian from the beginning. And the second foundational point is that the Christian experience of being saved is the experience of being saved by the Lord of the Old Testament as he promised. And so our understanding of God takes over in its entirety the revelation of God in the Old Testament. And we see this again throughout the New Testament. Consider that first Christian sermon that you heard Trav read to you. God has raised this Jesus. We're all witnesses of that. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, Lord, all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Here's Peter preaching the first Christian sermon. And what do we see? Here is God the Father raising and exalting Jesus the Son and entrusting to him the Spirit of God. And it is all in fulfilment of God's promises in the Old Testament. You read this whole sermon, you see Joel 2, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Father, Son and Spirit, one God, fulfilling the promises the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to his people. Or consider again Paul's introduction to Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, descendant of David according to the flesh, appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. There again, Father, Son and Spirit fulfilling the promises given through the prophets in the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures of which Romans is completely full of as it teaches us what God has done to save us. And Peter and Paul and all the apostles had actually learnt this from the Lord Jesus as he taught them that he was sent by the Father to save, a salvation that was the fulfilment of God's promises. He came, didn't he, preaching the promised reign of God spoken of in the Old Testament, came to the lost sheep of Israel, died as the promised king of the Jews in fulfilment of the scriptures. It's no wonder, isn't it, that John tells us that the glory the apostles saw in Christ 
was actually the glory of the Lord. John 1.14, we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the glory of the Lord Moses longed to see on the mountain. We have seen that in Jesus, they say. Knowing Jesus brought the salvation of the Lord promised in the Old Testament means that while it is awesome, it's actually no surprise when a true blue Jew like Thomas confesses the Lord Jesus God when he is convinced of his resurrection. My Lord and my God. You know, he never thought that in making that confession he was doing anything other than worshipping the God of Israel. And it's no surprise that Paul teaches that it's in the exaltation of the crucified Jesus that the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, fulfills what he said in Isaiah 45 would only be true of himself, that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to Jesus, confessing he is Lord. No surprise because the salvation the Son brings was what the Lord himself had promised to do. And that's really important that the salvation the Son brings was that the Lord himself was what the Lord himself had promised to do. This is in a sense the last point. Let me just run through it quickly. Some references that are familiar to us. Ezekiel 34. The Lord had promised he himself would be Israel's saving shepherd. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. I'll look for my flock. I'll rescue them. Or in Isaiah 40, a passage familiar to us because Matthew, Mark and Luke apply this to John's announcement of Jesus. But it's actually an announcement of the Lord himself coming. The glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord appearing, coming with might to save and to judge. Or again, Isaiah 45, the passage Paul applies to the exalted Jesus, where God says he alone will be exalted as the only saviour and Lord of the whole world. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn a truth has gone forth from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will swear allegiance. No surprise when Paul says every knee will bow to Christ, for Christ is God coming to save. Or again, Isaiah 59. It's the Lord here who promises to act because there's no one else, no one else to reestablish the moral order, to establish his rule. (coughs) And he promises, notice, that his own arm will do it. He saw there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation and his own righteousness supported him. And the arm of the Lord is revealed, Isaiah 53.1, in the servant of the Lord. What the Lord promised, he himself would do. The apostles taught by Jesus 
confessed he had done in the Son, saving as he said he would when no other could save, my Lord and my God, is the Jewish response taught by the Old Testament to the work of God in Christ. The Christian experience of being saved is the experience of being saved by the Lord of the Old Testament as he's promised. And so our understanding of God takes over in its entirety the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Now I know that I've covered a lot of ground today and introduced some big foundational ideas that the Christian revelation is the revelation of God as Father, Son and Spirit, one God from the beginning. And so the Christian experience of being saved is being saved by Father, Son and Spirit. And secondly, that the Christian experience of being saved is the experience of being saved by the Lord of the Old Testament as he promised. And so we inherit all that the Old Testament says of God. Next week, it will be a little easier as we start going through the phrases of the creed, looking in a sense at one idea at a time, starting with God as the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. But can I encourage you to go over the references and meditate on them? I know many like to have their Sunday sermons self-contained and to go away with a nicely packaged and applied point. And, of course, I'm a repeat failure at this. Uh, and, And you don't want to go away with work. But the goal is knowing our God, the true and living God, the God who has spoken to us in the gospel of his Son, whom to know is life. There is nothing better. And I hope and believe that through the work of God's Spirit in you, if you're a believer, you are thirsty to know God and willing to work to know him better by meditating on his word. hope you're willing to do that. Now, I had to, very atypically, had to put up a towel rail last week and it involved drilling through tiles, so it was full of fear and trembling, right? Now, some of us read the instructions for that kind of thing and understand and remember them the first time. Others, like me, read and reread the instructions and stop halfway through to reread them again. But slow or fast, when we're doing something like that, we put in the work, don't we, to read and understand because we want to get it right. We're willing to put in the effort for such a small outcome. And knowing God is so much more important knowing that our God, the true and living God, and knowing that we are known by him and embraced in his love, knowing that we know the truth of God, so we honour him by confessing the truth of what he's revealed of himself and we live with confidence in him. So brothers and sisters, don't shy away from work. Open your Bibles, read. Meditate, read the words of our Lord as he talks about Father and Spirit and then ask yourself, is your boast the enduring one? Do you know the Lord whom to know is life? On more, do you know what it is to say and mean? Do you you know what it is, whatever your circumstances? that the steadfast love of your God 
is better than life. Because, brothers and sisters, that is worth everything to know for yourself. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are awed, overawed, that you would even bother with us. We are so often just preoccupied with the mundane and so often we are giving ourselves to things and doing things that do not please you. And yet you still care for us and you make yourself known to us in your son and you invite us into relationship with yourself through confessing the truth of your revelation in Christ that he is Lord. Our Father, we pray that we would not ignore your kindness, we would not take it for granted, but that you would give us a thirst to know you and in your mercy uh, that in knowing you, you would grant us to know the delight, the confidence and the security of that, of knowing your steadfast love for your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.